Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Just less than a month after the date was set by the province, they've decided to pause on lifting restrictions. Was that the smart move to make? We'll analyze that for you. Ontario Premier Doug Ford said his government will meet his promise to cut gas prices by 5.7 cents before the next budget. That's 4.3 cents short from what he had promised in 2018. Do these promises carry any weight? And the ground search is finally underway for unmarked graves at a former residential school in Brantford. Kimberly Murray, Executive Director of the Survivor Secretariat, will join us to discuss that. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. About three weeks after setting up their timelines for lifting more restrictions here in the province of Ontario, uh, the Chief Medical Officer yesterday announced that they're pausing that plan. Uh, what has happened here is he says that uh, they're not going to be moving forward lifting capacity limits on places like nightclubs or sex clubs just yet out of abundance of caution. Uh, Global's Dave Woodard has some details. Dr. Kieran Moore says they're seeing an increase in the test positivity rate as well as higher daily case counts. From the 20 to 39-year-old age group, it's mostly in social settings where we take off our masks, where we have close contact as we move indoors. He says the pause is needed for at least 28 days when they'll look at the data and reevaluate. And while Dr. Moore can't be certain, he says he doesn't think it will impact further plans to lift more restrictions. The plan will continue to be on second week of January to reassess the data. At that point, vaccine certificates could be lifted. The plan also points to lifting all restrictions, including indoor masking, by March. Dave Woodard, Global News. So let's uh, evaluate just what's going on here and what the implications are going forward. And to do that, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program uh, Dr. Barry Pecos, who is the uh, public health and preventative medicine physician, also a professor at the Dalai School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. Doctor, pleasure to have you back on the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, your your assessment is of what of what was announced yesterday, hitting the pause button on this, is it the smart move to make at this time? Definitely. I think, uh, you know, in some ways it's more symbolic. It was just, you know, these small number of higher risk settings that we're putting a pause on. Uh, but I think it, it really is important to, you know, have that symbolism that we, we, we had a certain, you know, trajectory or plan, although we expected cases to rise as we went inside and as the, the winter progressed. Um, but, you know, a very important move right now. And, and I must say, I'm, I'm not sure we're going to be able to move out by, by January, but, but perhaps we'll chat about that as well. Well, let me, well, let's get to that now, because that's a point of concern for me and has been uh, right from the time that the, the province announced their timeline. Uh, it's one thing to say, okay, fine, we can go to football games and hockey games, et cetera. But uh, I was always uncomfortable with this saying, well, you know, by January, you probably won't need the, the proof of vaccination. And by March, you probably won't be wearing masks. Uh, when they set timelines like that without the, the medical evidence to, to substantiate that that's what's going to happen, does that give us a, 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 maybe an unfair expectation? Yeah, I think it, it certainly set, uh, well, it set up two things, really. Of course, the government wants, and, and for good reason, wants people to have this sort of light at the end of the tunnel. Um, but also, we need to, you know, be realistic. And we know that in northern climates like ours, when we get together indoors, you know, there's there's just more likelihood, uh, a, a trans, a likelihood of transmission. And certainly with the more contagious Delta variant that we've got this year, as compared to a year ago, you know, we just know that's going to happen much more frequently, particularly in unvaccinated people, but also in those who are vaccinated. Well, let me ask you uh, to get into the hypothetical here. Uh, would we be facing this right now if more people have been vaccinated, if we were around 90, 91 percent, as, as they suggested we should be? No, I mean, I, you know, it's always hard to have a crystal ball there. But but, you know, I would think not. You know, we we, we are really just seeing these 
you know, a significant amount of transmission, at least from an Ontario context. And we, we like to have things low for very good reason. Um, and we are seeing that transmission um, primarily among unvaccinated people. Right now, of course, a, a big driver is unvaccinated children who cannot be vaccinated. And we're hopefully going to deal with that within the next couple of weeks, which is terrific. Um, but, you know, if another few percent even of the adults were vaccinated, we probably wouldn't be going up you know, to the degree we are right now. Well, uh, to that end, then, uh, the the decision made by the government, again, this was a political decision, I guess, because I know, well, I'll get into the rationale for this in a second, uh, not to uh, institute a mandatory vaccination program, for instance, for healthcare workers. Uh, Was that a misstep? Uh, Well, from a medical or public health perspective, uh, I think it certainly was. And I think, you know, there's there's very broad agreement on that. You know, it, it is the purview of, of the political powers that be, certainly in Ontario. And, and you know, it wasn't unreasonable for their perspective. And, and you know, there, there was this, you know, argument on the other side about, about staffing issues. But, you know, it would have sent an important message as well as to really have protected those people in hospital. And, and I know because you're, you're absolutely right. There is some debate about just what kind of an impact. I, you may remember the premier's words that if he did this, tens of thousands of people might not go to work. And uh, the hospital association, which is advocating for the mandatory vaccination program, said that's just not true. Uh, even places where that's happened, uh, it was maybe five, six percent of the popular of their employment uh, group that were doing this. But anyway, uh, the decision's been made, uh, and as to whether or not they're going to have to revisit that, I guess time will tell. Uh, but there are some other elements to this, too. And, and the other thing that uh, that uh, the good doctor talked about yesterday uh, was the proof of vaccination. And there is a policy in place right now. Some have already adopted the QR code, of course. Others still using the, uh, the vaccination forms, uh, whether it's a picture or the actual form itself. Uh, Dr. Moore talked yesterday about, uh, I guess, some people that are actually uh, using phony things to get through here and wondering if that's going to be part of the cause. That hasn't actually been documented yet, but there's anecdotal information. Uh, Yet on top of all of this, doctor, uh, you've got, again, you know, the, the government saying, well, you know, by after Christmas, maybe in January, you won't need these at all. Uh, I've, I've already seen comments on social media right now from some people saying, well, why should I bother them? In just a couple of weeks, it's going to be gone. So what the heck? I'm not going to get vaccinated. I'm not going to use that. I'm just going to hold my breath and wait and everything's going to be fine by January. Uh, I, again, uh, uh, giving people an out and, and almost validating their decision not to get involved in this. Yeah, that that's certainly what all of us felt when that was when that was announced. You know, I I don't think it's realistic. I don't think anybody, whether you're in politics or in in the medical sciences or public health, thinks that's realistic. You know, my main concern now with the with the increase in cases from around an average of 350 uh, per day to an average around 500 now is really what things look like between now and, and you know the winter vacation, Christmas time, when people are really going to be gathering together. So you know if we stay around the 500 or 600 or under a thousand, then then as we start moving together and gathering closer together and vacationing, traveling, you know I think we'll be in a reasonable place. But if we continue on this trajectory, doubling every 15 days, then by the time we hit that sort of winter break, we're going to really see an explosion, as we've seen in many other places, and in fact you know here in Canada um, last year. And, and then we're, we're definitely not going to be on a trajectory to get rid of anything uh, by, by the new year. And the, the only caveat to that, the only sort of hope there is that we are going to be having these childhood vaccinations, the 5 to 11 campaign that hopefully will be starting soon. And we've got the third dose campaign. So, you know, there's those two things in tension right now. Yeah, for people that may have lost historical perspective on this, uh, it was just around 
uh, Christmas time that uh, that the province finally announced, that, okay, we're going to have to lock things down because they were very concerned about the skyrocketing rates then. Uh, and as it was then, I guess will be now, isn't it, Doctor? That Again, as you mentioned, the impact that it's having on hospitalizations and ICUs is really going to be uh, one of the, the barometers that's going to make that determination? That is that has been historically the most important barometer, and I think you know because of the you know wonderful vaccination rate we've got in Ontario, we are a little we need to be a little less concerned about that. You know, nonetheless, you know we see hospitalizations in ICU and deaths increase only you know two weeks, four weeks, six weeks after we have you know significant increases in cases. So you know we've we've been at this for almost two years now. We know what to expect, so we know that we we just don't have the the room to allow things to increase. I don't see us going into lockdown. You know, I see most Canadians, most people in Ontario recognizing, you know, that little bit of an increase means that whatever sort of liberties we were taking, we got to roll those back and, you know, get vaccinated. And I think we'll be in a, in a decent place by the holidays. Again, we can only speculate at this stage of what's going to go. I mean, what what Dr. Moore talked about yesterday was when saying hitting the pause button. In other words, not going forward with the next phase, uh, the nightclubs and all the other facilities that we were talking about. Uh, but he did once again express some concern about people that are in stadiums, arenas, things of this nature. Uh, is is that a concern for you too? I mean, you know, we see you know capacity crowds for Leaf games. Uh, Scotiabank, uh, you know, CFL Stadia are filled right now because we're getting into the playoffs and everybody's getting excited. Uh, is, is from a medical standpoint, does that concern you? You know, of course, anytime people get together, it's concerning. But I think the vaccine certificate program is really the way to do that. And, and I certainly know that people, many, many people have sort of expressed this sort of, you know, it doesn't seem to make sense to them. How are we, you know, allowing that many people to gather, but still we have these restrictions you know, that we've, we've said we're putting a pause on, for example, in certain venues, or even that we've got, you know, restaurants that are, we're still at, at half capacity until recently, and these events, you know, sites were, were opening earlier. And I think the real key there is about enforcement. So, you know, you've only got one place where the Raptors are playing, right? And so, you know, when we're restricting that venue to certificates, people with vaccine certificates only, you know, that's easier to do. When we've got 30,000, 40,000 restaurants, you know, who knows what's really happening in each one of those. So it's not only the amount of people, but also the whole mechanism and the logistics around enforcement. And that's sort of, you know, one of those considerations that's really important. So I'm not that worried about those large events. Um, You know, people are hopefully going to be wearing masks most of the time. It really is those smaller, more intimate venues where some of that enforcement may not be in place that is worrisome. Well, especially since some of the people that run those facilities, restaurants, bars, et cetera, said, look, it's impossible for us to do this. And and you're right, that's that's a face-to-face clientele. Whereas, uh, well, as I mentioned to our listeners, I was at the Tiger Cat game the other day. Uh, you can't get in the facility unless you show proof of vaccination. You're not even getting past the gate. Uh, and that's, I think, uh, probably, you know, a comforting to the people that are there. Uh, they may not be wearing the masks as much as they probably should be when they're in the in the stadium or the arena, whatever the case might be. Uh, but enough of them are. And the fact of the matter is, is that you are, we know that everybody in there is double vaccinated, uh, I would guess would mitigate any of the damage that could be caused. Yeah, I mean, you know, throughout this pandemic, at least until the vaccine era now, we've been worried about super spreader events, right? That's the you know, it's not just the super spreading to, to many, many people in a particular venue, but those people don't know, and they go and spread it to hundreds of other people, and that's how it really explodes. And thanks to vaccines, even in a large venue like that, you know, we, we could certainly be worried about, you know, a couple of people who are presenting false certificates and coming in there, perhaps, you know, infecting a few other people. But the risk of one of these, you know, huge explosive events, you know, is really not there uh, or, or is really minimized. And that's why it's, you know, it's always worrisome, but it's not, you know, acutely concerning. You know, I think it's a reasonable thing to do at this point. 
Well, and again, Dr. Moore talked yesterday about perhaps, and he's not there yet, uh, but perhaps uh, recommending that the QR code be the exclusive means of verification uh, instead of the possibility of, uh, of uh, what some people are using as phony cards like this. Uh, that would send a message too, would it not, that this is going to be here for a while to come? That certainly would send a message. I think, you know, we, we have to recognize that many people do have trouble using the, you know, the, the QR code. I myself, you know, thankfully just got triple vaccinated today. And it was only a couple of days ago that I managed to download the QR code. I'm not really going anywhere, but, you know, it's an extra step. I think, you know, one of the great things, as I mentioned already about the pandemic overall in Ontario um, is that, and in Canada generally, if people overwhelmingly have done the right thing, when we asked them to get vaccinated, they got vaccinated. We asked them to put masks on, people are putting masks on. Yes, there are a couple, very small percentage of people who are going to be dishonest about it. And, and you know, when it comes to that QR code, we, we just have to balance those considerations. How many people are really being dishonest about it versus how much of an imposition, particularly on people either who don't have access to smartphones or who are you know, over a particular age where they may not be that fluent with their use. So, you know, it's an important consideration. We'll see how things go and how, how uh, you know, how significant that fraud piece is. The other day when uh, Dr. Peter Uni from the Ontario Science Table was uh, was expressing some concern, very much as, as you are today, Doctor, uh, he reiterated what the government certainly said and what Dr. Moore said at the time when they they opened this up to stadiums, arenas, and things of this nature. It was on the proviso that we continue the social distancing when necessary and wear masks. Uh, would it help at all if the government sort of reinforced that? Uh, you know, instead of saying, well, yeah, by March you won't need masks anymore, because that seems to run counter to what I'm hearing from people like yourself and other doctors that said, look, this thing's not going away, even in March. It's still going to be with us in some way, shape, or form, and masking may be with us for some time to come. That's true. I think many people are going to mask for a, a very long time to come, even, you know, notwithstanding COVID, as has been normal in, in some other cultures for some time. But, you know, I think, you know, masks are are critically important and we need to have the positive messaging around that that's the difference between you know ontario and and saskatchewan and alberta you know we never got rid of that mask mandate and as a result we you know uh, we didn't have anywhere near the increase uh recently that alberta saskatchewan did that really included hospitalizations and death and really significant impact on society and, and ill people so you know i i certainly think the january sort of um, idea of getting rid of, of, of some of the measures there or the vaccine certificates is, is, you know, it's a little bit too soon to even thinking about that. By the end of March, if we have an, a really successful 5 to 11 children's campaign, if we, you know, uh, keep many of the other measures in place in, in the spring, you know, is in the air at that point, it's not totally unrealistic that we have some, some easing. I think for, for most of society, we're going to continue wearing masks, you know, at least until the summer is in full swing. One of your colleagues, uh, actually a GP that I was talking to about this the other day, actually used this analogy. I just wanted to run this by. He says it's it's like when a doctor prescribes antibiotics or any other medication for you, and you know you take these for ten days, and after about six days you feel pretty good, so you stop. Uh, that's that's not what you're supposed to do because you run the risk that it's just going to you know come back at you again, and and we don't want to make that mistake with this virus, do we? No, that's that's absolutely right. I mean, I, I think the only difference with that analogy is, you know, as a public health specialist who's particularly concerned with populations, is that you know when you're making that decision as a as an individual that you're not going to finish your course of antibiotics. Not only might you have you know a, a resurgence of that infection, but what you're also doing is leading to antibiotic resistance and potentially spreading that to many many others. That's, that's a huge impact. 
you know, I don't want to take that metaphor too far, but that's really what's going on here with the, with the masks, with the vaccinations. It's not only affecting you and your safety, it's affecting, of course, other people. And that's why, you know, I keep telling people who are thinking about the booster or, or the vaccine for children or whatever it might be, is that, you know, you're only as safe as, as your neighbor is vaccinated. You know, it, it's not about your vaccination status or whether you're wearing masks, it's about everybody else. And that's, that's why, thankfully, we've been successful as a society. And we just need to keep that in mind just, you know, for the, the end game here, which is probably another three, four to six months. And keep hammering that message home, I guess. Uh, doctor, always uh, reassuring to get your perspective on this. Thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. Thanks. Have a great day. You too. Dr. Barry Pecos, uh, who, of course, works at U of T at the uh, Dallas Atlanta School of Public Health. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. In case you haven't noticed, uh, we're into election mode here in the province of Ontario. Now, I, I know, I know, I know the next provincial election isn't until, well, next spring. It's actually the first week of June which is technically still spring. So that's a few months away. But judging by the actions and some of the comments made by, well, not just the government, but the opposition parties, uh, it's game on, uh, even though the the writ has not officially been dropped. And, and that was never more evident than this past week uh, when uh, Doug Ford, the premier himself, actually made a couple of major announcements uh, about, uh, well, highway projects. Of course, one being the Bradford Bypass uh, up uh, on Highway 400 near the Holland Marsh. And the other is the uh, very controversial Highway 413, uh, which he talked about yesterday. We carried those announcements, of course, on our program here. Uh, the Premier uh, also reiterated uh, a promise that he made way back when uh, in, the, in the last election uh, about uh, actually lowering the price of gasoline by lowering the provincial tax on that. Uh, he said he was going to do it by about 10 cents. So he did not. He put half of that. And yesterday he said that, well, he's going to actually drop it again by 5.7 cents uh, before the next budget, which is not going to be sometime in March, which coincidentally is just around the time uh, that the writ may be dropped on this. So, you know, slash that and put that under the category of, of campaign promises once again. So what are the ramifications of this? And, and just how are we reacting to this? And the scope of, of the uh, the promises and exactly how it's going to impact what's going to be happening in the election. Uh, to analyze all of this, please to welcome back to the program, Muhammad Ali, a senior consultant at uh, Crestview Strategies. Uh, Muhammad, a pleasure to have you back on the program. Hope you're doing well these days. I'm doing great. Good morning. Uh, in the old days, it was, okay, the writs dropped, and then they would come up with their platforms, et cetera, et cetera, and then we'd start hearing about all the promises. Uh, this seems to be the new normal, though, is to, to get out in front of this early. And this, so this is not really surprising what the Premier did, is it? No, it's not surprising. Um, as you said earlier, they're all just election posturing right now. We're, we're getting quite close to the official, quote-unquote, writ drop. Um, you know, everyone's going to be kind of, like, influencing uh, party's platforms. So uh, the premier will want to get out and, and get ahead, uh, just as he has right now, to build the wedge issues, build the kind of understanding of the issues that he's going to uh, run on in the next election. And you're seeing the same thing with the liberals and the NDP are trying to position themselves as being champions who can come into government and, and lead, lead Ontario. What about the two announcements that that he made this week? Uh, the, the public you know, relations uh, photo ops, etc. One in in just outside of Bradford, of course, the Bradford bypass, uh, and then of course he was in Caledon yesterday for the announcement about the four thirteen. As as you and I have talked about in the past, these are both very very controversial projects uh, because of the environmental impact that they're supposed to have, uh, and the fact that there doesn't seem to be an awful lot of study about these. Uh, the government seems to be, in some people's minds, uh, putting the rush on of these. 
Uh, but these are both highway projects, and they're both around the 905 area, 416-905 area, which is voter-rich when anybody that wants to form a government in Ontario has to do well in there. Is, is that the, the, the foundation behind these two announcements? Yeah, it is. You know, the, 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 Ford, uh, the Ford team is very much sensitive to public, you know, public perception. You know, they pull everything very intimately to ensure that whatever policy they put out they have, they're on the right side. And what you're seeing with some of these announcements that the Ford government is putting out are very much pocketbook-oriented issues. Uh, you know, look at the, ga- the dropping the tax on, on the price of the pump by 5.7 cents. Like, or percent. Like th- That's just a, an example of them trying to hit the pocketbook. And then the highway becomes the wedge issue. And they're really driving that over and over again to see if they can catch the, you know, the Liberals and NDP at the wrong side saying, well... You know, it's okay to be stuck in traffic. You know, that's the language that the Ford government is using, that we want to get you home quicker. We want businesses to be able to thrive. We need to ship your goods, you know, right on their stuck on highway, like the 401, the 400 and such. We need to get you going quicker. And that resonates with people because it becomes part of their daily psyche. They, they, they deal with traffic every day they're going to work. They deal with traffic going to school. They deal with traffic for a number of issues for a number of reasons and this would this would resonate with a lot of voters in the 905 who predominantly drive to and from anywhere yeah i mean they can talk all the money about public transit and I, you know we have the lrt issue here in the hamilton area and, and there have been some other areas uh where they made announcements even in the toronto area of course when it comes to public transit uh and light rail and, and subways etc but you're anybody that drives anywhere in the gta or from anywhere I guess all day long now. Rush hour seems to be from about six in the morning till eight o'clock at night. Uh, there's gridlock on every one of those highways. So I mean, this is, I guess, they figure a pocketbook issue for just about anybody who's in one of those cars. Yeah, it definitely is. You know, you think about uh, people are still a little bit nervous to go back in transit. And not to say that this is going to persist for the long term. I think it's still important to target transit investment because you do need to be cognizant of the environmental impact of too many cars on the road. Uh, and you want to get people efficiently in and out of, say, the downtown core or, or whatever. But there is still, you know, there hasn't been a major highway built in the GTA since really the 407. And that was quite a while ago. So, you know, population continues to spread further. Urban sprawl continues outward, northward. So there needs to be some uh, some thinking about what, what does east-west transportation look like? Is it just simply public transportation or transit or is it being able to drive quickly? How are trucks going to get going? So this is a, a, a very, I think this is going to be a very big, big, and probably one of the key issues that will drive the election uh, next year. It's interesting to see the pushback on this, though, not just from the opposition parties. You expect that, I guess, Mohammed, but uh, a number of citizens groups, uh, even politicos. I mean, you know, the 413 comes to mind. Uh, we just about every one of the municipalities, including Caledon, where it was yesterday, have said, don't do this. We don't want it here. Uh, yet they're going to push through with this anyway. Uh, and there are basically a number of environmental concerns that seem to be the foundation for the opposition to this uh, incursions into the green belt, the effect, impact it's going to have on, on ecosystems and waterways and things of this nature. What are they gambling on here, Mohammed? I mean, I, I'm, I'm trying to crystal ball here and figure, OK, what the rationalization is for this. The, the point about trying to appeal to, to commuters is one thing. But are they assuming that, yeah, the people that, that think this is going to be environmentally problematic, they're probably not going to vote for us anyway, so what difference does it make? I think a bit of that. I think there's, a, you know, you're, you're obviously going to, you're taking a very controversial position, right, on the 413. So 
you're definitely hedging your bets that the voters that care the most about this issue are mobilized in your favor. So if, if you're seeing that most people who are also mobilized voters or active voters or swing voters care about gridlock and care about getting a highway built so that they're not stuck going from Brampton to Markham more easily, well, you're, you're going to, you know, hedge your bets on that. Um, and so I, I think part of the other issue here, even for the opposition, is it needs, there needs to be an alternative plan. So you have a highway idea that's been put out there, the announcements out there about how much they're going to commit to it and the jobs creation, all that. Well, what's the alternative? Is there going to be you know, a goal line that's going to be built, a train line that's going to be built to, you know, circumvent that? Because people still need to get east-west. So mm -hmm. the question becomes that if, you're, if the environment is the key thing, okay, so what public transit solution is there? And that hasn't come out yet from any of the opposition parties, which I think is a strategic miss right now. I think it could change in the next bit because we still have a little a long runway, but that is something that we'll need to keep, see if political parties are willing to kind of think creatively of what are solutions alternative to a high reconstruction. And, and it's amazing to watch, I guess, you know, the human condition here and how I guess we all are, are guilty of just gravitating and to, to you know, embrace what we want to embrace here and listen to what we want to listen to. You know, there are studies that have been done that said, you know, instead of saving a half hour each way with this highway, you're going to save 30 seconds each way. Uh, and, and then there's the other one. I know Mike Schreiner from the Green Party has been saying that, look, at every time you build a highway, it doesn't relieve congestion. It just puts more cars on the road. And, and there's an argument to be made for that. You mentioned the 407 was the last major project that was uh, finished by the Harris government, of course. And that was supposed to relieve gridlock on the QEW. Anybody that makes that drive every day can tell you that didn't do a darn thing. Uh, there's still gridlock on the QEW. Now the 407's busy, too. So there's that argument. But for the people, I guess, that are in those cars, they say, I don't want to believe that. I just think that, you know, if you build another road, it's going to relieve the congestion. Uh, you know, and they want to believe this, so they're going to believe this, So, which is why the government, I guess, is, is hammering those talking points and saying, this is why you need this. Yeah, and, and that's the thing. It comes down to what's the alternative. They don't have an alternative right now to commute in certain directions without being stuck in traffic. So if you're stuck in traffic every day, they're like, well, like, what's going to make my life better? What's going to make my life easier? How can I get home quicker? How can I get my kid to hockey practice faster or whatever, right? So that that... When, and this is where it comes down to the strategy of, of each political party, particularly for the PCs right now, is looking at what is the pocketbook everyday issue that you're dealing with that we can, you know, hit the, you know, on a very simple basis of like a gas tax to more complex in a highway construction that obviously won't relieve your, your stress right now because it has to get built, which would probably take about anywhere from five to ten years. But people will see, okay, there's a solution on the horizon. So I can... You know, make a decision of like, yeah, you know, I can go buy a house here or at some point that I'll, I'll be able to commute from X to Y much more easily. So there, that, that's really the, where it comes down to is where is the optimism? Where is the, the future going to lie in terms of their current issues? Will it be relieved or not? And that's where voters are, are going to park their vote. Your, your point's well taken, though, about the opposition parties. It's one thing to say, don't do this. Uh, because it's bad, but if you don't offer them an alternative, those people in those cars right now are going to say, well, you know, show me plan B, and if you don't have one, uh, they, they're going to gravitate back to what they, I guess the government's saying. Plus, as you mentioned, uh, the added bonus of saying I'm going to reduce the price of gasoline too. Uh, and it, it, we, he reiterated that cry again for the, for the federal government to do that, and we already know that 
because of the, uh, the carbon tax in Christ. That's not going to happen from the federal standpoint. Uh, but there's another contentious item that uh, that has popped up in the last little while, and, and that's uh, daycare, child care program. I wanted to get your read on that. Uh, it was a major issue during the federal campaign. All three political parties, main political parties, all had a, a, a policy on that. Uh, the federal government is moving ahead. I think they've got seven of the provinces on side now with their daycare plan. Ontario is not one of them. Uh, before the election, uh, the premier said, yeah, we're, we're pretty interested in this. We'll have further discussions. Uh, then he seemed to draw a line in the sand right after the federal election and say, we want more money. Uh, so there's no agreement as of yet. Uh, and what's interesting about this now is, of course, a couple of municipalities, Toronto being one and Hamilton's one now, and Burlington is considering the same thing, of, of going off and to, dealing directly with the federal government and say, look, at our, our province here is dragging their heels on this. We need this program. Uh, the premier pushed back on that yesterday, saying, don't do that, uh, feeling it's undercutting his authority and thinking it's going to make it more difficult for him to cut a deal uh, with Ottawa in situations like that. Uh, it's probably a, a wrinkle that the premier wasn't expecting to happen in a situation like that. Is How's that going to impact uh, the relations between uh, those municipalities and the premier? Well, for one thing, you know, the, this is going to make things a little bit tougher on both sides for between the municipal and Ontario. I mean, there there is already an ongoing tension uh, between both on a number of file areas. Obviously, tr- the the city of Toronto leadership, you know, led by John Tory and the and the premier, don't don't see eye to eye together, uh, and I think that's been evident for a number of years since their mayoral race against each other. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they, they have to, you know, he's, he's been on, you know, some of these uh, municipalities, even Niagara region, they haven't been on the same side or same page as, as the premier. And, and this is a way for them to pressure the, the provincial government to start making a deal. You know, as you mentioned, there's still three, two other provinces that also have been, which is Alberta and New Brunswick, which they were further back when, before the election. Now apparently are, are very close to signing a deal. So the pressure is really going to magnify itself. Uh, on the provincial government to sign a deal because at the end of the day, these cities and these municipalities see that we need a child care agreement because there are still people that are not going back to work because it's still hard for them. There are employers who are still looking at it and saying, well, is it better I just keep people at home for now until they can you know, better manage the situation with their child care? It's, there's a lot of tough questions and it's impacting the economy. It's impacting you know, downtown vibrancy is impacting the ability for these cities to properly plan as well, because there is a huge need from a social and an economic angle of needing a childcare agreement. So they're going to, you know, forge ahead if they need to, because these municipalities also have a very good relationship at the federal level and a very willing partner at the federal government. So if the province continues to drag its feet, they're going to come into a serious issue where they're going to get cut up left, right, and center ahead of an election. You're absolutely right. I mean, for instance, in the Hamilton area, there are two cabinet ministers from this area, actually three if you want to count Burlington, of course, with Karina Gould, uh, who's in charge of this ministry. Uh, but it, it, it works to the federal government's benefit, doesn't it, to simply come back to the, to the Ford government and say, look, it, you're not getting more money. The deal's the deal. Everyone else is signing on for it. This is what's on, on the table. Uh, it, it really takes, I guess, a, a quiver out of uh, the, the arrow that, uh, that the Ford government would like to use, or an arrow right out of the quiver, I'm sorry missing up my analogies here uh because if if this you know the opposition starts to crumble here and cities start to one off on a situation like that it doesn't give the premier many options does it no it doesn't and and i think that's what he should be reading from the situation that he needs to get his act together quicker and sign a deal right now if you look at the numbers too they've been arguing about the you know the appropriate percentage that ontario should be getting well 
technically they are based upon what you know some the numbers now are kind of leaking out of the the proportionality because part of that money that is allocated to Ontario look for Ontario is also indigenous oriented child care so when coupled to get when you take that apart that already hits the appropriate percentage that the Ontario government is asking for so when it comes down to the money they're really just dragging their feet on this thinking that you know we can we don't have to worry too much of it and this is a problem with this government they are quite slow they operate just one issue at a time they can do a lot of things at the same time and I think they're it's a strategic uh, misstep if they don't get this deal signed as soon as possible because it takes time to implement and if they drag their feet and then Alberta and New Brunswick also sign on they're going to have to get what whatever the federal government is offering um, you know they're pointing up all the money and and there are some fair negotiation that has to go on that's totally fair but at the end of the day people want childcare like they need it done and they will remember that and that's also another pocketbook issue that if they miss and it was a big, big issue that was made in the federal election. It will become an issue in the provincial election as well. Well, those very same people that you were talking about that he's trying to appeal to with the highway projects and the gas tax reduction, uh, uh, it may it may be a moot point for them. If they can't get daycare, they're not going to work. Uh, so they're not going to you know, benefit from that. And your, your point's well taken because in the federal election, the child care issue was a huge issue in that very same 416905 voting area. Uh, if the government goes into this election, the Ford government, that is, without a deal, uh, you got to figure that that's going to be crippling to them. It, it definitely will be. And particularly if, again, if, if an Alberta and a New Brunswick sign on as well, you know, to, you know, especially a Jason Kenney, who's very polarizing right now, and he was able to find a, a fair deal with the federal government. It doesn't put the premier in, in good light right now. And if somehow the, the city of Toronto or Hamilton or Niagara or any other city or municipality signs a child care agreement, well, the provincial government is going to lose a lot more leverage. So to them, they, they better get a deal signed soon before they lose all leverage. Very, i got about a minute left here. Since the Ford government's already into election mode, for all intents and purposes, uh, is it incumbent for the, for in this particular case, especially the Liberals and the NDP and the Green Party, to jump on side two and, and get into the game and start making promises? I know Mr. Del Duca, the Liberal leader, uh, talked about giving veterans free public transit and waiving license plate fees, which is, a, I, I suppose, you know, given this sort of Remembrance Day, I, that, that seems somewhat appropriate. But uh, it's it's a kind of a, a small entity as opposed to some of the larger projects. But should they start uncovering some of these things and 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 try to one off and 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 one up the, the government in these situations? Yeah, you know, there's a, a strategy that goes behind it. You want to put certain, in, you know, unique or uh, big ticket, you know, semi-big ticket uh, issues, you know, for, for voters to start getting socialized and normalized. So like, hey, that's going to be a defining issue or we're on the right side. Because as we're seeing right now with the Ford government, they are kind of taking a we'll go in any direction approach. So that you don't have the traditional like, okay, this is what you know conservatives will kind of be looking at uh, from on this policy or that policy. They're willing to just you know, as Doug Ford says, he's a yes man, so he'll say yes to just about anything. Apparently, not childcare agreement, but the you know, where are they going to lie on something? So it, it's going to be important for the Liberals and the NDP to ensure that they've driven you know drawn their line in the sand on key issues that they'll want to run on. Uh, to avoid being seen as copying another party. And also a key thing is it takes a while for voters to really catch on. 
And if you put out a policy that is also unpopular, it's a good time right now to message test that. Because then you can pull that back, and just before the writ drops, then you can announce a maybe more refined or a different policy because you knew that the previous one didn't work. This one will work better. Well, it's game on in Ontario, obviously. Mohammed, always great to get your thoughts on this. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Take care. Mohammed Ali, Senior Consultant with Crestview Strategies, who are monitoring what's going on both federally and provincially. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Just a little bit further from where we are here down the 403, of course, is the city of Brantford. A uh, very important project going on there right now. A ground search is underway for unmarked graves at a former residential school in Brantford. Not two ground-penetrating radar machines are being used to conduct grid searches of about 200 hectares that's almost 500 acres around the Mohawk Institute. Six Nations of the Grand River Chief Mark Hill uh, has been on site. He says many for this day. It's been a long time coming. But also brings with it a stark reminder of the atrocities that were committed against our people in these institutions. The coming months will be definitely difficult for Six Nations. And our focus now is on preparing our community for the potential findings of the search and providing adequate mental health and crisis support to those who may need it. And support services and cooperation, I think, is going to be key to this as well. Uh, to talk about all of this, we're so pleased to welcome to the program uh, Kimberly R. Murray, who is the executive lead of the Survivors Secretary. Uh, Kimberly, thank you for the time. I'm glad you could join us today. Uh, good morning, Bill. As Chief Hill was just talking about, this is a, a, a momentous day, a sad day, and, and, and it, well, a very touchy day for an awful lot of people. I mean, we need to find this out, uh, but it's, it's going to be hurtful, I think, for many families, too. Um, absolutely. I mean, you heard the words of Chief Hill, and he expressed that. And I think, um, you know, the survivors that we're working with at the Secretariat, um, you know, there was a lot of anxiety about uh, yesterday, but also some relief uh, to know that the work has started because they've been asking for this for a very long time. Well, for those of us in the area that have been asking about this, and when we heard about the horrific stories about what was going on in British Columbia and other jurisdictions, uh, we talked to some of the survivors uh, from, from the Brantford area, uh, and they told their stories. And, and I, I think, Kimberly, I got the sense, and I think you could validate this, uh, a lot of the work that's going on now uh, at that institute is based on a lot of the stories from survivors as, as they recounted exactly what their experiences were. Um, absolutely. Um, you know, it's the number one goal of the Secretariat and the task force that this work be survivor-led. And, um, uh, you know, it was the very first place that uh, had to, where we needed to start, and that was to listen to and hear from the survivors because, uh, you know, they're our witnesses. They're the ones that uh, lived in this institute and uh, witnessed uh, things that happened uh, and experienced uh, terrible things in their own uh, experiences. And so uh, it was really important that we, we listened to them. And, um, you know, in the area that we've uh, targeted for the beginning of the search is because we heard over and over and over again from various survivors, uh, not just those at Six Nations, but from other communities uh, such as Aquasasne and Walpole Island, uh, that we need to start in, in the area where the old barns used to be located. And so that's where we're focusing uh, our search this week. This is a coordinated effort, isn't it? But the different police forces are working together here. Yes, it's a massive uh, coordination, and uh, we're a bit unique uh, compared to some of the other uh, searches that are taking place across Canada. 
Um, survivors uh, at Six Nations said, you know, this should be a police investigation. If this had been uh, an institution where white children went, uh, there would be no question about that. The police would come in and do this search and uh, this investigation. And so you may recall in the summer, uh, survivors came together with Chief Hill and they called for a police task force. And uh, we're really happy uh, that uh, the three police services, Brantford Police, uh, Six Nations Police, and the OPP, have all come together and uh, are working very closely with the Survivors Secretariat and the survivors to uh, get this uh, search done of the 500 acres. And, and these teams, of course, have been paired off uh, for the, the machines that are going to actually uh, be doing the search. And uh, as to where the search is going to go, we're talking about a huge space here. We mentioned uh for those who are still in the old, about 500 square, it's a lot, 500 square miles of 300 hectares, uh, 500 acres rather, I'm sorry, in, in situations like this. But, you know, it's it's a monumental task. This is going to take some time, and I think we have to be uh, aware of that, that, uh, that this is very painstaking, that it has to be very precise, doesn't it? Uh, absolutely. Uh, just to give you an idea, it takes approximately 40 hours to walk the ground penetrating uh, radar machines over one acre of land. Uh, so we're, we'll be lucky if we get one acre done this week. Uh, with the help of a very specialized team of the OPP, we were able to lay down uh, 10 by 10 meter grids uh, this week. And the machines and the teams that have been trained on operating the machines are following behind the OPP as they lay their grids down. But, you know, just uh, on Tuesday, the first day of the GPR, we were only able to uh, complete three grids. Um, uh, of 10 by 10 acres. So this is going to take a very long time. Uh, if we're able to use ground penetrating radar, and we won't be able to on all the grounds, uh, we're looking at, you know, over 20,000 hours of work. Um, so um, you touched on this, that, you know, it's community members that are being trained on how to operate the machines. Uh, and uh, we're uh, continuing to build that team of people so we can uh, have backup and multiple uh, teams able to uh, tackle these grounds. How are the, how are they handling this? I mean, I, I, I God bless them for doing this. Especially, you know, the police and the and the community members that are involved in this search. But you know, the more we find out about this, I, I guess the thing that uh, Kimberly that so many of us are bothered about is the more it, it's hurtful. I mean, I was watching the television news last night on Global, and they were talking to one of the the survivors who was on site yesterday. And they were talking about, you know, their responses and some of their, their accounts of what happened. And, and they said, well, some of the children died. I guess they drowned in a, in a lake that's a, or nearby. Uh, that has to be searched now, too. I mean, it just when you're struck with, the, first of all, the enormity of this, and, and secondly, uh, the horror of the, of the whole situation. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I think you heard Chief Hill speaking about the need for uh, support, mental health support and uh, yeah. spiritual support for the community. And um, that's something that uh, obviously we need to work very closely with the social services and health organizations within Six Nations and other communities. Um, I know, Bill, like if you look at our website, we identify uh, over 22 communities that are impacted and had their children apprehended around Ontario and Quebec and taken to the Mohawk Institute. And so uh, it's really important that we don't forget about those communities as well and keep them informed about what's happening. Uh, but I think that, 
um, you know, the overall people want to get the search done because it's, it's for, um, you know, to bring peace to the spirits of those children uh, and uh, to those communities that have unanswered questions. And so as painful as this work is, uh, there seems to be an overarching uh, commitment and uh, collective goal to, um, um, you know, bring some closure to communities. And and I don't, I I think closure is not the right word, Uh, but to give that peace to, to families and uh, communities about the missing children and identifying where they are. We're not saying that when, when and if we find uh, burials, that they will be excavated. And that's a very big conversation that needs to happen among survivors and community members, and uh, including the impacted communities uh, from outside of Six Nations. Well, that's a very important part about process here, isn't it? I mean, after all this data is collected, uh, my understanding is it's going to be sent to archaeological experts, uh, and and there'll be a final report on that. Uh, when that report is done, is is that when the, you make that determination, Kimberly, about what next steps would be? Um, I think uh, you know our first, uh, as you say, is to get our report uh, and to get the data analyzed by the experts. And there's you know just there's very few experts in this area around the world. Uh, we're trying to um, uh, connect with uh, the right people to do this analysis for us. We want to ensure that it's uh, accurate. Uh, we will, of course, uh, present the findings first to survivors and communities um, and have those conversations. Um, you know, we are uh, organizing uh, gatherings, and due to COVID, there'll be uh, multiple gatherings of smaller groups. Uh, so we can have those conversations about the protocols, um, how we will address this and, um, you know, and speak. It's really important for us to speak with our traditional knowledge keepers, uh, both Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe, to guide us in this work uh, and to do the right thing for the children and the spirits. And uh, that's part of the, uh, the big conversations that we'll be having over uh, the winter months when we're not able to actually be doing the ground searching. One of the, uh, the stumbling blocks, I think it's probably a very apt way of describing it, uh, on a macro level, and we're talking about the, the, the federal initiative here, uh, is, is, is lack of information and gathering of information. And some of the institutions that were responsible for these, uh, these homes, if I can use that expression, uh, giving that information forth. I, I, we, you know, we can get into the idea about uh, the Catholic Church, et cetera. But let's talk about this particular project here in, in the Brantford area. Uh, this is, as I understand it, historically, it was actually run by the Anglican Church at one time, and eventually the, the government took it over. Uh, are you be able to access these records uh, from from these uh, these organizations to be able to, uh, first of all, give you the information that's necessary? I'm sure that, as you say, there are things like death certificates and, and a number of other things. There's paperwork on this as well. Are, are they forthcoming with that information? Um, so, I mean, you're absolutely right. There's a massive, massive amount of uh, documents and archives that we need to have access to. Uh, right now, we have very limited access to records. Uh, the records that we do have access to are publicly accessible on the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation's website. Um, that's the entity that was created by the Truth and Reconciliation Commission under its mandate of the settlement agreement. Um, and so they house 5 million records on their database that the TRC collected. Um, and of those 5 million, only 1 million records are accessible to the public. Um, and uh, and that's, that's nationally dealing with all the residential schools across uh, what's now known as Canada. 
Um, and so uh, we are working uh, with the National Center to get access to all the records that they have in their possession with respect to the Mohawk Institute. But, um, you know, that's not the only place where there's records. As you, you mentioned, you know, the federal government, we've now learned, have not returned over all their records to the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation. Uh, the uh, church entities, we need to see how many of the records that the Anglican Church provided uh, were complete. If they were complete at all, we're not clear on that. Um, and, you know, we have to follow the truth. You know, it's really important that we follow the truth and where it leads us. And and it leads us to other entities. It leads us to the provincial governments. It leads us to municipal governments, to police services. It leads us to universities. Um, these are all large institutions that have archival records, and we need them to op- open their archives up uh, to the secretariat and to our task force so that we can uh, do this work uh, completely and, um, you know, do it right. And I, I can't understand the reticence. I know I'm speaking to the choir here because you've been trying to get these records for some time now, as others have. Uh, I'm sure there's going to be some information that's very sensitive, that may be very damning, uh, but we we can't get this. I mean, you know, as we've talked about so many different times, Kimberly, there can be no reconciliation until there's truth. And that means that it all has to be out there on the table. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think, you know, the, the commissioners of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission talked about the importance of sort of acknowledging our past and atoning for our involvement in the processes and, you know, hiding behind, you know, the laws and colonial laws, uh, protecting those records or hiding them from survivors and communities. I mean, the time has come that communities take ownership of their records uh, regarding their members and their communities and their lands. Uh, and that they provide those records to us. Um, and, and just just also, it's not enough for them to be, uh, you know, and this is another problem that we're running into, is we don't want government officials going in the archives and looking at them and deciding what to give us. Mm-hmm. We want to send our own team in those archives to get the records. Uh, only we will know and the community will know what are the relevant records to help with the work that is being done by the survivor secretariat. So Do they understand need, that? Sorry? Do they understand that? Do the people that are withholding no. these understand that? that? That it's not supposed to be vetted through them? That, that, that they shouldn't be making that determination? No, I, no, I, I strongly believe they don't understand that. And we saw the same thing happen with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, where the federal government mm-hmm. set up its own little internal team, uh, and it wasn't good enough. Uh, you know, the problem will be when we have these internal mini teams made up of government bureaucrats doing the work for us, there's no trust. There's no confidence that it was done correctly. The only way for survivors and communities to have confidence in the process is to have ownership and leadership and lead that work. And so, you know, we need governments and these institutions to support us with the financial resources and open the doors and let us go in there and have a peek. Uh, yeah. And that's what we need to do. And just back off and let you do your job. Exactly. Uh, g- good luck with this. It's it's so very important that this be done and done properly. And uh, we appreciate your dedication and, and, and so many others who are involved in this right now. We'll certainly stay in touch as this uh, process unfolds. But thank you so much, Kimberly, for the time today. Thank you very much, Bill. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. 
I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.